You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. A double homicide in northern BC is attracting worldwide attention tonight. A young man from Australia and an American woman found dead under suspicious circumstances. Their bodies were discovered along the Alaska Highway about 20 kilometers south of the popular Liard Hot Springs. Sarah McDonald has more on what we're learning about the couple and the investigation underway. They were tourists in their early 20s, exploring British Columbia in a remote northern stretch of the province, hardly known for the foul play this couple encountered. This is certainly unusual, um, and now we're trying to determine whether this is targeted or whether it was a crime of opportunity. RCMP confirming Friday China Noel Deese and Lucas Fowler, 24 and 23 years old respectively, were found murdered 20 kilometers south of Liard Hot Springs early Monday. Their bodies discovered on the side of the Alaska Highway, where witnesses report seeing the pair alive and well hours earlier. And we saw the young couple and the van, the van hood was up like they had broken down. And they were sitting in some lawn chairs in the ditch. The couple didn't really indicate that they were having problems. A major piece of the puzzle of this baffling murder mystery, this blue van with Alberta license plates discovered alongside the bodies, investigators not revealing if the victims were discovered inside it, admitting they don't yet know if the vehicle is connected to the couple or whoever killed them, now still at large. That's what we're trying to determine at this point, um, if they were actually the drivers of this vehicle. So that's what we're asking. If you were a witness and you did see this particular van or you were a witness to either China or Lucas who were traveling in the area to contact us. This tragedy has international ramifications, impacting three countries. Fowler was an Australian national, his father, a high-ranking police chief in the state of New South Wales. Deese, a native of North Carolina, was visiting her boyfriend, who was living in B.C. They had a very well-planned trip to travel up, um, up the coast and pretty much see everything they can in Canada. Australian investigators are now traveling to Canada instead, arriving in Vancouver Friday alongside Fowler's family, saying in a statement, to lose someone so young and vibrant who was traveling the world is devastating. At this stage, we can only move forward a minute at a time. Sarah McDonald, Global News. A Fraser Valley man has pleaded guilty in connection with the death of a two-year-old girl who was poisoned by snake venom. The B.C. Prosecution Service confirms 51-year-old Henry Thomas pleaded guilty to failing to provide the necessaries of life. The toddler was in his care in 2014 when RCMP say she was poisoned by snake venom. A sentencing hearing for Thomas has been scheduled for October 3rd. Updated numbers from TransLink today reveal the proposed Surrey to Langley SkyTrain project would cost almost twice as much as the light rail option, far more than Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum's promise. Aaron MacArthur compares the numbers and how TransLink says it's still worth the money. Stuck in Wally, SkyTrain passengers have been longing to travel farther down the Fraser Highway. For more than two decades, promises and plans have been made but the train stops at King George. TransLink has crunched the numbers and now has a plan for a train to Langley. It doesn't come cheap. We are estimating that the cost of the Surrey-Langley SkyTrain along the Fraser Highway corridor is $3.12 billion. 
TransLink has funding for about half that and is proposing to the Mayor's Council that seven kilometers of track get built, ending at 166th Street. If the decision is made now, trains could be running by 2025. And at this point, people willing to take anything. Yeah, good idea. Build it. That's, that's my opinion. Build it and they will come, just like the movie. And when is it coming true? When Mayor Doug McCallum was elected in Surrey last year, he promised trains to Willowbrook, saying the cost was no problem. We feel that the uh, line can be built um, from our city centre to Langley for the $1.6 billion. Um, We're still on that contention. In the current plan, the Fraser Highway will get an elevated SkyTrain track, and the city of Surrey will abandon the LRT promised originally. Light rail transit is cost-effective. Surrey taxpayers now on the hook for $39 million to pay TransLink back for much of the design work scrapped midstream. Exactly when it would be repaid, we haven't worked that through. It would be repaid uh, at the time at which we start spending money on the project. Mayors will see the TransLink proposal next week. A business case could be made by 2020. The longer this is delayed, the more the project will cost. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Well, even former Premier Bill Vanderzam is weighing in on this one now. Keith Ball rejoins us from Victoria with more on what Vanderzam and his group are proposing. Keith. Yeah, Vanderzam's been brought in by the South Fraser Community Rail Society to basically give them some publicity. And who better to give publicity than Bill Vanderzam? He's made a lifetime in politics of doing just that. Uh, but uh, they're looking at a hydrogen-fueled f- uh, uh, rail line, a rail cars that would travel on an existing rail line that's already in Metro Vancouver between Surrey and Chilliwack at a far greater, uh, uh, more, more uh, le- less of a cost than SkyTrain. We're not talking more than $3 billion here. We're talking $250 million to connect Surrey to Langley with this new technology. We caught up with Bill Vanderzam, who I've had a lot of dealings with over the years. He walks us through the route this train would take and how many people would ultimately it could serve. The proposal that we're going with runs from Patella Bridge Skytrain along Scott Road for a time, then through North Delta, then through Kennedy and Sullivan, then into uh, Newton goes through Newton, serves Newton well, then it goes to Cloverdale, and from Cloverdale to Langley. And it, instead of serving 153,000 people, such as the SkyTrain proposal, it'll serve 450,000 people. Well, he certainly makes it sound like a great option, mm-hmm. Keith. What's the biggest roadblock to this idea? Yeah, the biggest problem, I think, and TransLink's already flagged this, I believe, is that there's already existing a heavy amount of ra- uh, freight uh, traffic on that line that's been in operation for a number of years. Uh, Vanderzam tells me, though, that the line is wide enough in terms of the right-of-way that it can be expanded to accommodate additional tracks. Uh, but now that SkyTrain has been flagged as such an expensive option, you have to wonder whether Vanderzam now is going to get a lot more publicity for the line he's touting. All right, we'll see what happens with it. Thanks, Keith. Yeah. Some breaking news for you now. B.C.'s legal challenge to Alberta's turn-off-the-taps legislation has been stayed. The challenge filed by B.C. Attorney General David Eby against Alberta's Bill 12, the so-called turn-off-the-taps legislation, which Alberta could use to restrict oil and gas exports to other provinces. B.C. argues the law is unconstitutional, but a Calgary judge says the challenge was filed in the wrong court. It should be heard in federal court instead. B.C. did anticipate that and has also filed the papers in federal court. 
Today marked the final day for British Columbians to have their say on daylight saving time. The online survey asking if B.C. should keep changing the clocks twice a year or stay on daylight saving time permanently. It closed at 4 p.m. today. The province launched the survey back in June when Washington, Oregon and California formally requested a move to permanent daylight saving time. More than 200,000 surveys were filled out. The results will be revealed later this year. Meantime, the province has eliminated personal limits on out-of-province liquor. Previously, there were limits on the amount of liquor British Columbians could physically bring back from other provinces. But personal alcohol exemption restrictions were lifted as of July 8th. The change matches similar action taken in other provinces, which may result in increased sales for local producers to out-of-province visitors. Calls tonight for the B.C. government to do more to help a Chilliwack woman who risked her own life while trying to save another. Julie Callahan's right hand was severely injured last May when she tried to rescue a man in a wheelchair who was stuck on a railway crossing. The damage so bad, three of her fingers have to be amputated. Since we reported that she cannot afford the $80,000 for a prosthetic, she's been overwhelmed with offers of support from the public. However, while Health Minister Adrian Dix said his office would be reaching out, so far, Callahan has heard nothing. She should be helped right now. I think the health minister at this point should make this a priority. It's not, it's not good enough to say to Ms. Callahan, we have some programs, perhaps you should apply. What the minister should be doing, and the premier, is find that money. We have a $50 billion government budget. Somewhere in there, you can find $80,000. Right now, though, after recent reports of a rabies death caused by contact with a bat, a Chilliwack woman is more than a little concerned about the bats she discovered living in the home she just purchased. Somehow, the home inspector missed the colony living in the chimney, and she's even more surprised to find out she's not allowed to get rid of them. Jill Bennett explains why. There, there you come. Oh my God. The new owners of this home had no idea it came with unwanted tenants. They noticed bats flying in and out of the chimney the day after they moved in. Michelle Hamill sent her husband to investigate. He got up on the chimney and started counting how many were coming out and he stopped counting at 150. Hamilt says it feels like living in a horror film. A few days ago, she was unrolling this awning on her back deck. She says a bat flew out and screeched at her. I'm nervous doing this right now, but ooh, that was really scary. I know it's just a bat and some people think they're cute, but I certainly am not one of those people. Hamill had the home inspected before she bought it, but the inspector didn't detect the bats. She called a pest control company to see what could be done. Well, I can see one or two bats. This pest control technician spotted the bats in less than a minute, tucked away on a far attic wall. But for now, his work stops there. Under the B.C. Wildlife Act, all 16 species of bats in the province are protected. You can't kill them or harass them. That means no setting up lights to get them to leave or spreading things like mothballs or pesticides to get them out. But there still could be pups still inside that, you know, so I don't necessarily want to block the hole and then... They can't get out. So I, I'm really, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm really sick about it and, I, and I'm nervous. Hamill is also concerned because although rare, a young man recently died of rabies after being scratched by a bat on Vancouver Island. But nothing can legally be done until the bats leave on their own. They begin migration south in September. 
after their uh, pups, uh, bat babies, um, have learned to fly, returning to breed again the following spring. So Hamill and her family will have to live with this for the next six weeks or vacate the premises until the bats do. I don't want to be hanging out with bats. Sorry. Jill Bennett, Global News. The city of Penticton is taking a well-known panhandler back to court, alleging Paul Braun didn't hold up his end of a plea agreement after several bylaw infractions. Shelby Tom has the latest, including why police refused a request by the city to arrest Braun. I did call it a war on homeless, and this is why. Penticton lawyer Paul Varga claims the city continues to target his client, well-known panhandler Paul Braun. He's got uh, bylaw services taking his picture and trying to build a further case against him. The city is taking Braun back to court. Last September, he pleaded guilty to eight bylaw offenses for obstructive panhandling near a pedestrian breezeway. Braun struck a plea deal with the city, which included 60 hours of community service and 145 dollars in fines and restitution. The city alleges that Braun failed to complete his community service hours and the fines remain outstanding. He breached the court order and now we're required to bring him back to court as a part of the court process. Meanwhile, at this week's city council meeting, the mayor revealed the city tried to have Braun arrested, but the police wouldn't play ball. John Vasilaki asking the superintendent of the local police detachment why they don't arrest people for bylaw infractions. The notion of using the criminal code and the powers of arrest contained in 495 of the criminal code uh, to address an issue, a social issue or an issue of poverty will never fly with the Supreme Court and puts my members in the position where they are breaching the law. A complete and utter waste. It would be if the uh, RCMP were asked to go and arrest Mr. Braun for this bylaw infraction. Varga also critical of the city's recent handling of social issues. Last month, it implemented a bylaw amendment, making it illegal to sit or lie on public sidewalks downtown, prompting protests by anti-poverty advocates. It hasn't addressed the issues, the underlying issues. It's just moved it somewhere else and pushed it out of sight, out of mind for the tourist season. Varga says he's speaking with other lawyers about a potential legal challenge to the bylaw. As for Braun's case, a trial is scheduled for November. Shelby Tom, Global News. It's been nestled on the shores of Indian Arm for nearly a century. A small blue squatter's cabin in Cates Park, once threatened by condos, is now making a big move. It's en route to its new home as a floating studio and artist residency. Linda Aylesworth reports. On the North Vancouver waterfront, a one-of-a-kind project is underway. This is a project I've been itching to work on since I heard, heard about it. Jermaine is a visual artist with a particular interest in small buildings, which makes her ideally suited for the Blue Cabin project. It has been a place of refuge and production for artists for decades already, so there's something inspiring about that. For most of its 92 years, the Blue Cabin sat on the shores of Kate's Park up Indian Arm. It was one of many squatter cabins in the day, but was the sole survivor when its future was put in peril three years ago. We were trying to keep the cabin on site, but that whole area was under, under development and they were building condominiums there. Fortunately, the developer was Polygon, the owner, art collector and philanthropist Michael Audain, who paid to have the cabin moved. Oh, that would have been impossible for us to do. Us being the arts community, which has since come up with the funding and the plan to transform the Blue Cabin into its next incarnation. 
it's going to become a floating artist residency. So the cabin will be located on a floating platform with a deck house next door that will accommodate artists and the public. The deck house with its 360 degree view will be the living quarters. As many as four artists will rotate through each year. Nestled beside it, the blue cabin, painstakingly reconstructed, it will serve as a studio. They took apart this cabin piece by piece, sanded back, clear-coated each piece of wood and put it back. All of it supported by a massive concrete and foam floating platform. The completion date, later next month, when it will be towed to Falls Creek, where it will remain for a year or two before moving on to its next inspirational location. That's the wonderful thing about the arts community and the what, what you're able to do is that you can make this beautiful, implausible thing happen and it's a truly unique thing. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Philadelphia news crews captured a real-life Spider-Man in action last night. The man scaling down his apartment building after fire broke out. He managed to make it down 13 stories to get himself to safety. The fire reportedly started in the trash chute at the 19-story apartment tower, spreading smoke throughout the building. Several people were taken to hospital and crews were eventually able to knock down the fire. A stunning turn today in a sensational New Brunswick murder case. Eight years after multimillionaire Richard Oland was found bludgeoned to death in his office, his son, who was the only suspect, has been cleared of all charges at his retrial. What is his name here, sir? Dennis Olin leaves the St. John Law Court surrounded by family and friends and applauded by supporters. For the first time since being charged in the gruesome 2011 slaying of his father, Richard, He's been found not guilty of the crime. Oland has been waiting more than two months to learn Justice Terence Morrison's decision in the retrial. Before delivering the not guilty verdict, Morrison gave about a 20-minute summary of the nearly 150-page decision. Justice Morrison pointed out, There is much to implicate Dennis Oland in this crime, adding, I cannot accept outright the accused's denial of guilt. But ultimately, Morrison couldn't accept the Crown's argument. He said there are too many missing puzzle pieces to form a coherent portrait of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The emotion in the courtroom was far more contained this time compared to Olin's conviction back in 2015. When the verdict was read, Olin turned and hugged his lawyer, Alan Gold, before going on to a tearful and joyful embrace with awaiting family and friends. Afterward, Gold told reporters he was uncomfortable accepting congratulations. And I sincerely hope everybody understands that Dennis Olin is innocent. He did not kill his father. The day to celebrate will be when the actual perpetrators of this crime are finally caught and brought to justice. Outside the courthouse, there was general agreement with the verdict. Just in listening to the evidence and the inconsistencies and the holes, as the judge said, you know, it was like trying to put a puzzle together without having the picture on the box. The whole thing, when it first happened, it, the whole thing was botched by the police. And I just had a feeling that he was innocent, and I was right. The Crown Prosecutor's Office won't comment while it reviews Justice Morrison's decision. It has 30 days to file an appeal. Andrew Cromwell, Global News, St. John. Now, critics are calling it lunch shaming, and it's causing outrage in the United States. A school district sent a letter home to parents warning their children could be placed in foster care if their school lunch debts aren't paid. 
The threatening letter was sent to parents at the Wyoming Valley West School District in Pennsylvania, trying to collect $22,000 owed by roughly 1,000 students. The district wrote parents, if you are taken to dependency court, the result may be your child being removed from your home and placed in foster care. It's bordering on criminal, if you ask me, for them to pull that on families. Sparking outrage, critics call the letter lunch-shaming, but the cash-strapped district says it needs the money. It might be a bit too heavy for some people. No one wants to take their kids away from them or to uh, advocate that, but we were not getting a response. With the National School Lunch Program serving 30 million children, 20 million kids qualify for free lunches, 2 million more for reduced pricing. A growing number of states have passed or are considering legislation banning lunch shaming. Federal lawmakers are working on their own anti-shaming bill. It's messed up. It puts a lot of pressure on the kids um, and the parents. Tonight, school administrators in Pennsylvania are sending out letters of apology, but the last thing some parents want here is more mail from the district. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News. In Health Matters tonight, BC is marking an amazing milestone in 50 years of organ transplants. Since 1968, 5,000 people have been saved by organ donors. The milestone recipient, a young mission man whose kidney transplant journey has spanned six years. But as Jennifer Palmer reports, despite the success, more donors are needed. Jeffrey Dunsire is celebrating a remarkable milestone made possible by a generous, life-saving donation. He's the 5,000th organ transplant recipient. I'm so incredibly grateful to be standing in front of you today because when I was in hospital, my family was told several times that I wasn't going to make it. But here I am now, a double organ transplant recipient. 31-year-old Jeffrey has spent the last several years fighting for his life. He received a liver transplant six years ago, but the liver failure resulted in him needing a kidney transplant. That's where Debbie Pierce, Dunsire's realtor, stepped in. I feel empowered, positive, and grateful to be able to be a small part of his journey to good health. My life has been changed in so many positive ways by donating a kidney to Jeff. BC has become a leader in transplantation medicine, marking 50 years of transplants. However, the need for donors is never-ending. There are currently over 700 people waiting for an organ transplant. Last year, 27 people died while waiting. There are people uh, who passed away and pass away every year waiting for a donation. So we need more people to take part on the living donor side. Debbie's hoping her and Jeff's story will inspire others. Here I am, one month after my surgery, and my recovery was quick and uncomplicated. I'm proud to say I'm a 64-year young lady, and I'm healthier than ever. While BC has the highest number of registered donors, around 1.5 million, donors of all ages are always needed. Only 1% of those who sign up will actually be candidates for donation. Jennifer Palma, Global News. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Caught on video, a wrong way driving moment in downtown Vancouver that's, we think, going to go viral. We'll explain after the forecast. But right, I think it's already gone viral. I think it has. Right before we get to Christy, there is dangerous heat sweeping much of the eastern half of North America tonight. And in some places, the scorching temperatures and humidity are only getting worse. 
In Madison, Wisconsin this morning, a mechanical fire at this power plant. There's a transformer and an access fire. Knocked out power downtown on the hottest day of the year. With the summer heat wave sweeping the country, today in Kansas City, it feels like 110. In Omaha and Des Moines, 114. Heat that's already proving deadly. Former New York Giants player Mitch Petras, just 32 years old, has died of apparent heat stroke in Arkansas after working outside yesterday. In Chicago, the Lurie Children's Hospital is showing just how fast a hot car can kill. The air inside jumping from 80 degrees to 130 in less than an hour. Dehydration and the kidneys shutting down can happen pretty rapidly, particularly at 120 degrees. Just within like, what, 5, 10 minutes, I 15 minutes? We'd start to see those effects within 10 to 15 minutes. Around the city, Salvation Army cooling centers are ready. Can centers like this ultimately save a life? I believe so. I believe so. And special instructions at this peewee practice in Ironton, Ohio. If you start feeling not so good, stop. Just drink all kinds of water till the game's over. Today, New York City is under a heat emergency as these dangerous temperatures head east. That young boy was right. Absolutely. That heat dome. Christy Gordon joins us now with look at our forecast and this heat dome, Christy, that they're talking about. Yeah, so it's not a new thing necessarily. It's just a new term that we're planning on it. It could be a heat wave as well. It's essentially a ridge of high pressure with a very stable air mass where the heat gets trapped in a dome. So I think it's actually a pretty good term in that it describes this scenario very well because the heat in this type of scenario tries to escape as it rises. But because of that stable air mass or dome or maybe a lid, you can imagine it like it forces that heat back down and it continues to heat up like that. And inside that, we can get extreme uh, temperatures and they can last for prolonged periods of time. Now, uh, as our climate changes, we are going to continue to see heat waves. Uh, they'll become hotter and they will last longer. It's sort of the opposite of, say, a polar vortex uh, where we'll see these extremes time after time. And the number of days we'll likely see above 35 degrees will double in the coming decades. Now, the change is coming for those areas. Although we can see this type of scenario last a long time, it's not going to last that long this time for them. We'll start to see things break down on Sunday and into early next week and we're going to see the opposite scenario. Some things will cool off there and we're going to see this big ridge build further west. Now it's not going to be for all areas across BC. Northwestern sections will still stay a little cool, but we will see that heat across much of the province through the weekend and in the coming days with the hottest day likely for coastal regions happening on Sunday at 28 degrees away from the water, but on Wednesday we'll likely see it break down. So a good four days of sunshine and heat is what you can expect. Fire danger rating is at a good level. We're heading into a hot, dry weekend, and this can change really quickly. So while you enjoy the great outdoors, just be careful with your uh, campfires and things because we can certainly see that change quickly. A chance of showers and a risk of thunderstorms in the northeast. Otherwise, Saturday is looking terrific. We'll see some cloud cover. Temperatures will climb above seasonal, 22 to 26 degrees for Metro Vancouver. We'll see similar conditions, but even hotter on Sunday and uh, cooling off a little bit Monday, Tuesday. And there's your showers for Wednesday. And we had a full moon this week. I didn't notice it. Not observant enough, but uh, Richard certainly did. Thanks, Richard Heron. That's a really neat shot from Link Lake. Kind of spooky almost. Yeah.
and good explanation of the heat dome. Thanks, Christy. No doubt. Okay, now Vancouver police are investigating a bizarre sight caught on camera in downtown Vancouver this morning. Yep, that is a wrong way driver driving down the stairs at the Sheraton Wall Centre around 8 this morning. Witnesses say she passed the signs in the parking lot and then proceeded to drive down the stairs toward Hornby Street. At one point, a pedestrian goes up to say something to her and she reportedly responded with, I can't see. Well, when she finally reached street level, she turned on her signal and she drove off. Good driving habits there. Good driving yeah, that's habits. True. That's true. She Thank admits you. to the stare problem, but that's not going to stop her from signaling her yeah. intentions. That's right. Like that. <laughs> Talked about what a failure the first round was for Rory. Boy, did he back down to, or back uh, bounce back. Today. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing about golf. There's always another round, usually. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was quite a quite a day today. Thanks very much, guys. Uh, Rory McIlroy put on a golfing display today that thrilled the fans at Royal Portrush in Northern Ireland. Unfortunately, Rory fell one shot short of making the cut and will not play the weekend in his home country, but it was still a day he will not forget. The crowds and atmosphere at Royal Port Rush have been just fantastic so far. Sorry, the fairway. Abbotsford's Adam Hadwin gave them something to cheer about early. Hadwin from the fairway on 8th and from about 150 yards out. No putter required. An eagle two. Hadwin four under on the front. Finished two under 69. Made the cut on the number at plus one. He'll be the only Canadian playing the weekend. Corey Connors plus six. Tiger Woods also had a bad day like Rory yesterday. Much better today. One under 70 but will miss the cut at plus six. Round one leader J.B. Holmes of the U.S. Staying at the top of the leaderboard. Nice birdie there. He is at eight under, so he's tied for the lead, and he shares that spot with Irishman Shane Lowry, who had a lot of support, and he made some great shots today. How about this putt on 10? Just enough on it to go down. He's tied with Holmes for the 36-hole lead. Englishman Tommy Fleetwood right in the mix as well. Like in his fashion choices today, Fleetwood makes birdie, just one off the lead at seven other. Another Englishman, Justin Rose for eagle. That goes down. He's at six under, just two back. He'll play with Brooks Kepka tomorrow, who's also at minus six. Now we go to Rory. He had the eight over 79 in round one. Needed to shoot a 64 today to make the cut. And did he ever make a run at it? Throws a dart at 11. One of his seven birdies on the day. On the 16th, Rory with another birdie, gets all the way back to plus two. Six under on the day. Needed to make one more, but he fell just short. Despite all that support from the crowd, got a spine-tingling ovation walking up 18. What a story that would have been to make the cut, but an, an emotional Rory was thankful he had this moment in front of his fans today. I, I feel like I get a lot of great support anywhere I go. But I really felt it today for whatever reason. You know, like every green to tea, you know, all these people are here for me and they want me to do well. And, um, you know, I'm, it sucks I'm not here for the weekend. Um, I, I would have loved to have played in front of them for two more days. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm proud of how I stuck in there. All right, more golf. The uh, Barbasol Championship in Kentucky. Get a close shave, win a golf tournament. Abbotsford's Nick Taylor trying to follow up his career best 9-under 63 in round one. But as often the case, you tend to... 
follow going super low with something very ordinary. A good shot here led to a birdie, but an even par 72 for Nick. Tied for 18th. He's five off the lead. Adam Spenson of Surrey missed the cut. Well, if you were hoping the Canucks could uh, get rid of Louis Erickson in a straight-up swap for Milan Lucic, you can forget it because Lucic was dealt to Calgary today for James Neal. Both men make big money but did not produce much points-wise last season. It's a good deal for both teams, I think. Both guys needed a change of scenery, but Louis Erickson and his contract remain in Vancouver. The Whitecaps were back on the pitch today for a recovery session after a deflating 4-0 loss in New England Wednesday, followed by a long cross-continental flight home. Right now for the Caps, recovery session is more mental than anything, trying to somehow stop a free fall that has them feeling lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut. I think it first starts with uh, everyone really looking at themselves in the mirror, you know, trying to first address... What can I do better? What can I improve on? What have I been uh, slacking in, you know, a little bit? And we just all got to really lock in, focus, and then look at ourselves and then push together as a team. I, I, sh- I should credit Jed Clampett from the Beverly Hillbillies uh, for that one, a little, uh, little out of my uh, realm there. Well, it's been about seven months since Wally Buono retired, leaving an unparalleled 46-year CFL legacy behind. That's an incredibly long time doing an incredibly all-encompassing job. But Wally is enjoying the good life now, trading those long hours in the pro football business with long hours with his family. The thing I've always believed in is if you live in a community, you should be a part of it. This is Wally's World Today, talking with fans at a charity golf tournament in support of the BC Women's Health Foundation. He's always been about community and family, and now, after spending nearly half a century in the CFL, Wally is full-time family man. Yesterday, we... My fifth uh, grandchild had her fourth birthday, you know, so we went to Build-A-Bear, went to lunch, went to see uh, the Lion King, and, uh, you know, before you know it, it's 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. He's in full retirement mode and loving it, but he's not totally distanced himself from football. He still talks occasionally with people in the CFL looking for some sage advice. He did take in the Lions game last week at BC Place, but he's careful to keep his distance. I think it's not fair to the... Uh, existing coaching staff, existing management to have somebody that's just hanging around. Uh, you know, you, you sever ties. That doesn't mean he doesn't feel for current head coach Devon Claybrooks, who's just one and four out of the gate. That would leave him 281 wins short of Buono's all-time record of 282. You know, when you're the head coach, uh, everybody's expecting you to be the one that solves all the issues and fixes all the problems. And, uh, you know, uh, Devon's been around. He's been around a lot of successful people. And, uh, you know, he'll get it resolved. And Wally insists it doesn't matter who calls. He is, he's staying retired. He say he's out. It's a real retirement. It's not a boxing retirement. You know, it's going to stay. Coming up on ET Canada, we're at Comic-Con with Linda Hamilton and SpongeBob SquarePants. Interesting duo. Plus, Ted Danson and the Good Place cast celebrate their Emmy nominations. That's coming up at 7 right after the news hour. But for now, it's back to you, Chris and Sophie. Thank you, Cheryl. I love the Good Place. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Tomorrow, as we've been telling you, is the 50th anniversary of what is considered the greatest technological achievement of humankind putting astronauts on the moon. That's right. When Neil Armstrong took that first step, there wasn't time to celebrate. He and Buzz Aldrin had work to do, collecting rocks. 
And two BC women have an amazing story of how their scientist father brought those lunar souvenirs home. This week, many of us looked up at the moon and thought, wow, people were wandering around up there 50 years ago. Neil and Buzz were doing lots of important things like collecting rocks. And one of the people telling them which ones to get was a Canadian. My dad was on a first-name basis with all the astronauts. But he had to train them. Right. He had to tell them, this is what we're doing. This is the experiment. This is where I need you to go. This is what I need you to get. So they knew him very well. In fact, they called him Dr. Strangelove as a joke because his name was Strangway, of course, but um, they, uh, there was a movie, I guess. Dr. David Strangway was a University of Toronto geophysicist who took leave to work for NASA. Lunar rocks were his thing, and while their delivery to Earth by spaceship was sort of important in human history, he managed to bring some home to Canada in his baggage. Oh, the rocks the night he brought them home before customs came a knocking and he just had them in his general luggage. They were in his clothes. It's is like his he had them in a shirt like a shirt he had worn. Before he became president of UBC, Dr. Strangway took his family on many adventures, including stops at Mission Control in Houston where the kids met astronauts. One big memory was the ultimate show and tell when he took the moon rocks to Susan's grade two class. The kids were impressed. Some of the kids drew some illustrations <laughs> that are <laughs> kind of uh, cute. You know, there's my dad and the table and the moon rocks. He brought moon rocks and moon dust. But this week, his children just look up at the moon and think of the amazing journey of some rocks, the people who collected them, and the dad who brought them home. Oh, my father was so inspirational. Um, like, you know, I mean, I'm an artist, but uh, he inspired not only scientists, but uh, the arts. Every time we look at the moon, we think, well, Dad brought us a piece of that. Airmen from the planet Earth, first step foot upon the moon. Ted Field, Global News. Amazing. So he apparently <laughs> kept them in a box in his office, right? In at UBC, yeah. And they're not entirely sure whatever happened to that box. They think oh, maybe really? they, he gave them, like, donated them somewhere? Yeah. But we're not sure where. Is anybody out there who knows about the box of Check moon rocks, rocks at UBC? Yeah, yeah, look around. You would hope that the so moon rocks were at the were at the last thing in show and tell because it would be really hard to upstage, right. you know. Yeah. yeah. Brought, you know, a local You wouldn't brand. want to follow the <laughs> yeah. girls yeah, in show and tell. Hitom, uh, last word before we go. Yeah, not necessarily for us, but still a nice stretch of weather for sure with uh, temperatures away from the water on Sunday, likely the hottest at 28 degrees. All right, enjoy that summer weather. Sunscreen, everyone. Have a good vacation. Thank you. Thanks for <laughs> watching. Have a great night, everybody. Good night, all.